Well, welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. How are you doing? It's good to have you. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for coming back. Uh, and if it's your first time, geez, well, okay, brace yourself. Um, I've done a couple of deep dives before on this on this podcast. I've, I've we've obviously tackled uh, the life and times of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and that was over three episodes. This one is uh, over one episode, and it's about one book, one author, Patricia Highsmith and the talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, this is a book that has been with me for years. When I first watched the film, I wasn't wholly aware that it was uh, an, an, an adaptation of a book. I just wasn't aware of it. I was a young guy, didn't know. 10 years later, maybe not even that, maybe 15 years later, I, find, I think, you know, I'm on Audible looking for books. I really like a bit of murder mystery. The Talented Mr. Ripley. And it's, it was like coming home, let me tell you. It, it's not only inspired me to, to do this episode, but it's inspired me to start writing again. And as, as, you, as you guys know that listen to this podcast reasonably regularly, I'm 70,000 words now into my own book. So it, it's really been a hell of a journey. But to go back to the beginning, um, why? Why this book? I think it's a great study of of, hum, of humanity, the, 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 the fibres of, of what makes up a anti-hero. And I think that's what Patricia Highsmith does so well in this book. And what she, the way she brings listeners, readers in, rather, in such a, a passionate way. You know, you only have to scan Instagram for about five minutes to realise just how many people there are out there that fell in love with either the film or the book and what it means to them. And I think I'm one of them. I think I am. I think I, I am classed as obsessed. But uh, anyway, um, who's, it, who's on this podcast with me? It's D David Menkin and Andrew Wilson. So Andrew Wilson is the biographer of uh, Patricia Highsmith, and he's going to just introduce himself in just a minute, so I won't go and... Uh, I, you know, I won't go and uh, d d just say what he's going to say anyway. Um, and David Menkin is uh, the voice actor of the uh, audio book of The Talented Mr. Ripley. And it's quite funny because there are extracts in this episode. David reads them out. And the book, the, the audio uh, version is probably about uh, getting on for 10, 12 years old, I guess. So David's voice has changed just a, a touch, but in a beautiful way. And when he sent me these extracts, as a fanboy that I am, it was kind of like listening to, I don't know, like a, the, the digitally remastered album, like Led Zeppelin 2 or something. And I was absolutely, oh my God, fanboy, messaging him going, oh my God, David, this is unbelievable. I am so, and I'm drooling, you know, gushing all this like adoration on him. He's such a sweetheart and I can't wait for you guys to spend like a little bit of time in their company because they're so well versed in this in this subject, not only in Patricia Highsmith's life and what inspired the book, um, but also th just the text. You know, we get such a you're so lucky, damn it. You're so lucky because <laughs> you get the extracts read by an absolute professional uh, at the top of his game and then you get the the, I don't know what, what you'd call it, the unpacking, the deconstruction of the text, which is pretty cool. And I love that. And that's why I've done it, because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't avoid it any longer. I had to do it. 
But yes, um, thanks for coming to the show. It's really great if you want to share it or rate it on iTunes and all that kind of whatever that is. It would be lovely. If you want to support me, please do so by going to somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. You can uh, read my blog. You can listen to some of the music I've created. You can, geez, you can listen to episodes of the Limehouse podcast. I've even got a short film up there with the uh, actor Tim Bentink, who plays David Archer in The Archers. I've also got uh, a comedy pilot up there about my life and times as a musician, a struggling musician, I might add. So that's somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. And that's a great way of, I don't know, paying me back in some way if you feel like you want to. But anyway, look, really, God, just enjoy this, you know, break it down if you want to. I, I suggest, you know, 20 minutes at a time. Or if you're completely obsessed like me, just listen to it once and then rewind and listen to it again. But above all, pick up a copy of the book. This is possibly the best way of, it, of really supporting uh, such such wonderful artistry. She's, she's no longer with us, of course, Patricia Highsmith, but her legacy, I, I want it to live on forever because it's so important. And um, she was ahead of her time. And I think any, uh, you know, that just needs to be celebrated. She's such a gifted, wonderful, oh my God, just a genius. Anyway, uh, yeah. And uh, do, do support uh, Andrew's work. You can, oh my God, he's, he's written about 50 million books. Um, and he's going he's gonna to tell you that. So anyway, in a second, Here's Andrew, here's David, enjoy the show, and, um, God, Dickie, Dickie, wherever you are, heaven, hell, in the sea somewhere, who knows, I mean, we do know, but, you know, thinking of you, man, thinking of you, and Jude Law, if you want to come on this podcast, the invitation isn't just open, it's, uh, no, 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 it's, it's in the ether, it's in the ether. Matt Damon, that goes for you as well. And um, Gwyneth, dear Gwyneth, I didn't intend to do this, but um, okay then. But anyway, um, let's start with the lovely David Menken. David, tell us about yourself, what you do, and um, maybe why I kind of know you. So I am uh, an actor and voiceover artist. I uh, work in film and TV, but I also make my living mainly by being a voiceover artist. So I work as a voice in animation, um, anything from uh, Bob the Builder, where I was Scoop, to Thomas and Friends. Uh, I was Virgil and Gordon in the new um, Thunderbirds series, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I do promos and commercials. I'm the annoying American voice that you hear. Um, and then uh, I also do audiobooks. And that's how yeah. our paths crossed. Uh, I actually Indeed. was following your podcast uh, already, and I can't remember what got me to click onto it. Something did, most likely something to do with Brexit um, back in the day. Uh, but I have been listening. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I, yeah, I've, I've been uh, working as a professional uh, since uh, 2001. I am... Uh, half Norwegian, half American. My dad, uh, my dad is from New Jersey. My mother's from Norway. They met in, in the States. My dad followed her back to Norway, but he worked in oil. So we moved around the world and that's why I sound like this. So, okay. yeah. Um, I'm lucky that my mom insisted on me, um, keeping up the Norwegian 
because uh, it's been helpful. And, uh, but I, yeah, I work mainly as an American. And, um, okay, well, I, ca- I can't even say hello in Norwegian. So what's hello in Norwegian? Hi, what on harder? Sweet. Wow, you've got that down, man. That's, uh, that's not like I still speak it. That sounds like full on good. Oh, I'm, I'm, yes, um, I'm broadcast quality, as they say. So, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I work as, I work as a Norwegian as well uh, when they want me. Okay. So, yeah. Man, busy. Um, Andrew, I mean, I'm just going to say, Andrew Wilson, what do you do? Because I'll just do it for you because I know what you do and I'll just sound rubbish. So you go for it, Andrew. Fill the listeners' ears with the glory that is Andrew Wilson. Okay, I'm not sure about that. But I'm, um, I trained as a journalist, a feature journalist, and then I started writing books. And this biography of Patricia Highsmith, um, Beautiful Shadow, was my first book. And that was published in 2003. So that took me, I think, the best part of five years to research and to write. And I spent a year in the Highsmith archives, um, beavering away, looking through every single scrap of paper I could find, coming across love letters, curses, strange drawings, and lots of beauty and lots of savagery at the same time. Um, Since then, I've written biographies of Sylvia Plath, a group biography of the survivors of the Titanic, a biography of Alexander McQueen, a biography of Harold Robbins, the inventor of the bonk buster. And I've also written a number of crime novels as well. So um, I've written four novels um, with Agatha Christie as my sleuth. And then recently I've written um, a psychological thriller called Five Strangers published under the name E.V. Adamson. So yeah, quite a varied, varied career. Do you know what? I feel so good that I, I don't have to explain who I am because if I did, I'd just be like embarrassed compared to the wall of stuff that you guys do. This is fantastic. Um, I'm so excited to get this going because I, it's, a, it's a really cool journey for me personally, being such a massive Highsmith fan um, and of this book as well. And um, I mean... It's hard. It's hard to know where to start because um, I was just saying to David that I've literally started reading it again this afternoon. Just to just I don't know. I I say reacquaint myself with it, but I'm kind of like so acquainted with it. It's stupid, but it's just. It, I think it just goes to show how addictive it is as a book. But um, if we just talk really, really briefly about what this book means to you, um, and then we'll kind of get going with the with the first extract or what have you. Um, Andrew, what does the talented Mr. Ripley mean to you? Well, for me, it was a portal that drew me into Highsmith's life, in a way. So it's like this stepping stone um, between my ordinary life, my pre-Highsmith life, and then the kind of crazy, strange, obsessional world that I was drawn into. So I was in my mid to late 20s when somebody handed me a copy of The Talented Mr. Ripley. I'd never read any Highsmith before. And it was the book that changed my life, I suppose, because I became increasingly obsessed with her. I realized there was no biography of her and that's what started me on this journey. Well, I suppose you can start in Positano in 1952 when Highsmith was, she's staying there with one of her lovers, Ellen Hill. And um, she was staying in a hotel called the Miramare. And she, one morning, really, really early one morning, she. She walked out onto the balcony 
And she spotted this young man who's by himself walking along the beach in shorts. And I'll just read you what, a little bit what she wrote about that experience, because I think it really informs everything that comes later. Um, so she says, all was cool and quiet. The cliffs rose high behind me and were out of sight then, but visible to, to right and left. Then I noticed a solitary young man in shorts and sandals with a towel flung over his shoulder, making his way along the beach from right to left. I could just see that his hair was straight and darkish. There was no pensiveness about him, maybe unease. And why was he alone? Had he quarreled with someone? What was on his mind? I never saw him again. I did not even write anything in my cahier about him. And the word cahier there refers to her journals, her kind of repository of ideas, um, which she kept religiously. And that's one of the, the, um, the extraordinary resources that I drew upon for the biography. But basically, Ripley is there throughout every single page of her journal, right from the beginning. As soon as she started recording her thoughts, her philosophy, philosophical thoughts, her reading, um, Ripley's with, with her. And it's because we can talk about this in more depth, but Ripley was really a part of Highsmith, a huge chunk of her character. Um, some people even said that he was her alter ego. So it's, it's, it's one way that Highsmith could express the kind of the sociopathic or criminal side to her character. Um, and she started writing the book in 1954, um, and it only took six months to write. And at times, it was like it was almost as if Ripley was writing this book, not Highsmith. You know, so it was done with such kind of energy and passion. And I think that's what you can see in this opening page, in this opening couple of pages, because we're right in the midst of the action, right at the beginning. And the pace doesn't stop, does it? As soon as you read those words, Tom glanced behind him, saw the man coming out of the green cage. You know, there's a pursuit, there's the cat and mouse. And even in the first couple of pages, you get the bigger themes such as of identity, um, the fluidity of identity, and the kind of very strange sense of sexuality in this book as well, which is something to be explored in greater depth. Wow, okay. Goodness me. Um, and uh, David, David, what, what does this book mean, mean to you? And, and like when I, I, were you aware of it before you took it on uh, for some work or? Well, uh, first of all, this is actually not a podcast. This is an intervention brought about <laughs> by your family um, to stop you. Yeah, you're not wrong, mate. And the madness yeah. that you brought into your house. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, to tell you the truth, uh, the, the Talented Mr. Ripley was the first audiobook that I did in um, long form. Okay. I had done a few things for Radio 4, uh, Book of the Week and things like that. Um, and uh, my, and I'd recently changed agencies and my agent said, this has come through and it's, it's, a, it's a straight offer to you, which is unusual. Uh, and I didn't know how to prepare for an audiobook and at that point you didn't have the youtube tutorials you didn't have the the you know this this group of people helping each other out so i just was got highlighters out and started working and uh inadvertently became obsessed myself with uh with what is sort of the 
the the the corrupted American novel, yeah. the um, the, uh, the 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 dark side of the American dream, right? And um, I loved it, um, and ended up ended up reading it. I think something like four times before I then went into the studio and, and started working on it. God. And that was in 2010. Okay, wowzers. So, um, just as a, a little bit of a fanboy, um, how did you go? How did you go about um, constructing those those uh, voices of, of Tom and Dickie, Marge, etc.? Um, be, because it, that is something I'm sure a lot of people would like to know in terms of it. it, it that's a skill. You know, they, they, I think people go, oh, you just put on a voice. You just put on a different voice. How did you go about building that? I mean, that's that's takes some cojones, man, to do that. I love it. Well, first of all, you have to make sure that you are you find you find a voice that works for both uh, Tom's external voice and his internal voice. And um, and we you also have to make sure that you as as an audience um uh, can in a way just be as ensorcelled by him as as the people around him, mm. because he is uh, he is a sociopath. He is able to he's able to make people believe him, even though um, a lot of people pity him, uh, especially strong people. Mm. And I had to find um, that in myself, really. So I sort of stepped out of the base in my voice for him. Um, when he when he spoke as himself and i realized that uh, in order to find dicky i had to find sort of the more masculine version of him so i wanted them to be slightly alike because of the fact that that tom felt like he could slip in to dicky's life so easily so i just put a little bit of extra bass in him and from there uh mr greenleaf senior of course he then became the bassier version of that um, when it came to Marge, I realized that she had to be a woman, and I, I, but I had to, as a narrator, not do something that was stereotypical or strange or comic. I had to, I had to find her within myself. So I actually brought her a little bit down, and I made her um, because she came from money. So therefore, making sure that she she sounded like she was. Uh, she was well educated and um and she was soft and of course there was all the, the breathlessness yeah. that came up in the book about her so therefore i had to be able to find something in her where you had her strength and then you just saw it sort of ebb out of her and mm. disappear and then i had to sorry um, uh, then i had to find the voices of about seventeen thousand italians um <laughs> and i almost lost my mind and my favorite one was when it said dick uh, sorry tom noticed that um, that he he'd clearly been educated both in the states and at Oxbridge. I was going, how the hell am I going to find this? <laughs> yeah. um, and then I uh, and I went. Uh, uh, I had a terrible experience with uh, with the English accent, but uh, but uh, that's uh, that is just sitting there waiting for me to listen to it at some point later. But uh, I had a. A terrible no, time well, I, that. I think you did a brilliant job. It will be really cool like, a, a bit later, perhaps, is to, is to, to talk a little bit about the the comparison between the, the book and the film, which I'm sure mm. you kind of have to really because it's so well loved. I think yeah. it's, it's in my top three films of all time as well. And that was even before I read the book. But anyway, basically, we are going to try and do three extracts from the book. The first one up is the very first one, the very first, very first passage of the book. 
Tom glanced behind him and saw the man coming out of the green cage, heading his way. Tom walked faster. There was no doubt that the man was after him. Tom had noticed him five minutes ago, eyeing him carefully from a table, as if he weren't quite sure, but almost. He had looked sure enough for Tom to down his drink in a hurry, pay, and get out. At the corner, Tom leaned forward and trotted across Fifth Avenue. There was Raoul's. Should he take a chance and go in for another drink? Tempt fate and all that? Or should he beat it over to Park Avenue and try losing him in a few dark doorways? He went into Raoul's. Automatically, as he strolled to an empty space at the bar, he looked around to see if there was anyone he knew. There was the big man with red hair whose name he always forgot, sitting at a table with a blonde girl. The red-haired man waved a hand, and Tom's hand went up limply in response. He slid one leg over a stool and faced the door challengingly, yet with a flagrant casualness. Gin and tonic, please, he said to the barman. Was this the kind of man they would send after him? Was he? Wasn't he? Was he? He didn't look like a policeman or a detective at all. He looked like a businessman, somebody's father, well-dressed, well-fed, graying at the temples, an air of uncertainty about him. Was that the kind they sent on a job like this? Maybe to start chatting with you in a bar and then, bang, the hand on the shoulder, the other hand displaying a policeman's badge. Tom Ripley, you're under arrest. Tom watched the door. Here he came. The man looked around, saw him, and immediately looked away. He removed his straw hat and took a place around the curve of the bar. My God, what did he want? He certainly wasn't a pervert, Tom thought for the second time, though now his tortured brain groped and produced the actual word, as if the word could protect him because he would rather the man be a pervert than a policeman. To a pervert, he could simply say, no thank you, and smile and walk away. Tom slid back on the stool, bracing himself. Tom saw the man make a gesture of postponement to the barman and come around the bar towards him. Here it was. Tom stared at him, paralyzed. They couldn't give you more than ten years, Tom thought. Maybe fifteen, but with good conduct. In the instant the man's lips parted to speak, Tom had a pang of desperate, agonized regret. Pardon me, are you Tom Ripley? Yes. My name is Herbert Greenleaf. Richard Greenleaf's father? The expression on his face was more confusing to Tom than if he'd focused a gun on him. The face was friendly, smiling, and hopeful. You're a friend of Richard's, aren't you? It made a faint connection in his brain. Dickie Greenleaf. A tall, blonde fellow. He had quite a bit of money, Tom remembered. Oh, Dickie Greenleaf. Yes. At any rate, you know Charles and Marta Shriver. They're the ones who told me about you, that you might, um... Do you think we could sit down at a table? Yes, Tom said agreeably and picked up his drink. He followed the man towards an empty table at the back of the little room. Reprieved, he thought. Free. Nobody was going to arrest him. This was about something else. No matter what it was, it wasn't grand larceny or tampering with the males or whatever they called it. 
Maybe Richard was in some kind of jam. Maybe Mr. Greenleaf wanted help or advice. Tom knew just what to say to a father like Mr. Greenleaf. When you're, David, when you're reading that, um, you know, what, what's, as obviously taking away the fact that you, you, you're, you're an actor now, but just as a neutral, I suppose, what does that opening, was that opening like few paragraphs mean to you? What, what did it do for you? And, and if, if there's any, if you can draw any meaning from any of that? Well, it starts, it starts, as you said, um, as a man on the run immediately. But it's also a man who, when he, when he has the choice between uh, becoming the international spy and, and ducking through all the dark alleyways and, and losing his pursuer, he chooses instead to go into the bar. And he is, he is somebody who is stuck in his life. And therefore we, uh, we have, uh, we have a, a man who, whose major worry is about being caught for mail fraud. So, um, so he is a small time criminal and, but at the same time, he has these delusions of grandeur seeing, uh, thinking that, that he'll go down for at least 10 years because, you know, it's a, fe- it's right. a federal crime. And, uh, and so he's a, he's a fantasist as well. Do you, do you think that's why, why Highsmith, um, is, it does such a wonderful job here because she, literally immediately makes you feel sympathetic towards him because it's a little bit pathetic exactly and that that is the thing yeah. he he is um he is the uh, the protagonist and antagonist in his own life and therefore we have to feel sorry yeah. for him yeah and, and andrew as a, as a as a writer um uh, there's the sort of uh, even i used kill the cat as an example to to as, as writers sort of bring the audience onto the side of, of protagonists and what have you. Do you think like she's doing like a kind of like subverting that in a way? Well, it's really interesting because obviously everything is seen right from the beginning from Tom's perspective. So it has that kind of closed third person point of view. So that makes it immediately claustrophobic, I think. And I think also in terms of, I think we know right from the beginning, even in these first few pages that she's doing something really interesting in terms of suspense writing, because as we know, Highsmith hated the whodunit form. Um, She hated the label, a crime writer. Um, And her tradition actually is, as as we know, from, you know, European existentialism. And I think, um, you know, this sort of glances of of Henry James already in the first few pages, aren't there? This, this, you know, the the ambassadors is mentioned and obviously the same kind of themes are are mentioned there and drawn upon in terms of those kind of parallels. But I think we're sort of primed to sort of see Tom as an anti-hero, but an anti-hero, as as David said, who we're forced to identify with. And that is the kind of, one of the greatest skills of this book, isn't it? The whole way through. And Highsmith does it so gradually, doesn't she? So, you know, to begin with, we're not talking about murder, which obviously would alienate the reader, but it's a subtle step-by-step process where we're forced to identi- identify with this kind of small, small-time crook, um, you know, and living in this kind of sordid flat in a dingy brownstone between Second and Third Avenues, um, and he wants a different kind of life, obviously. Um, and I think that's that's really kind of fascinating. Everything is set up in the first couple of pages. 
Yeah, it's it's, it's totally it's absolute genius. Um, it does. I what I what I love about that is just just reading it because the other thing is I've obviously audio booked this many times and I've only physically read it once through, but having read it now just the just again just at the opening few paragraphs is his sort of um almost boredom when he come when well absolute boredom when um herbert greenleaf um is um talking to him and he's sort of um desperate to get uh, um tom on side to go and to go and essentially help him pursue his son and he's trying to sort of almost get out of it um and i I, I was just like I didn't realize that before that, that that was happening, and he's that 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 almost that slow reeling in, and then suddenly, you know, the penny drops. Hang on, um, I can go from without knowing. Obviously, I can go from small time crook to what can see how this goes. See how we pan this out. Does that make any sense, chaps? Please. You can you go first, David. Sorry, I I, I forgot. Uh, no, no, please. <laughs> I, I I would say absolutely, uh, because he is he is a man who is desperately trying to rid himself of anxiety at all times, and he is mm-hmm. um, and he is always looking for the and he thinks that money is the key. So if he only has enough money, the anxiety will stop. the 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 pursuit um, uh, will stop. Mm-hmm. And he, and that is why he is, he is extremely benign in his, in his responses to Mr. Greenleaf until he realizes that there's a lot of money and he goes, oh, of course, Dickie. And, or I I don't have the exact words, but you know, and that that's, and then he switches on the charm and he's, he's ready to go because, and this is the thing, he knows how to talk to these people as far as he's concerned and he's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, you touched on philosophy earlier, um, Andrew. Um, I've just um, started reading um, Albert Camus, um, The Outsider. And what what were the influences to Highsmith and her her forming this character, uh, Tom, Tom Ripley? Well, you can sort of see the influences throughout her her journals. Um, And because she read English at Barnard um, in New York, she was doing a lot of reading for her courses, obviously, but then she carried on, um, you know, going to kind of great depth, particularly looking at existentialism, at Jean-Paul Sartre, at um, Camus, who you mentioned. And one of the, um, the biggest influences, which I was really surprised by because I'd never really come across him before, was an American French writer called Julius Green. Um, and nobody really talks about him anymore. He's a kind of one of these forgotten writers. But there's a really key text that she read in the 1940s. Um, it's his novel, If I Were You, which is almost could be a subtitle to the Times of Mr. Ripley, I think. And it deals with really, yeah. really very similar kind of thing, themes. It was published in France in 1947 and America in 1949. And it's got a young man with a near pathological sense of self-hatred, um, who's a central character called Fabian, Fabian. And he's motivated by the desire to shed his skin and take on the personality of another. And when I read that, because um, obviously these notes are in Heisman's journals, and I went off and got a copy of this book, I really couldn't believe, and you know, I was astounded to see the parallels between the two texts. But obviously there's other, many, many other influences as well. 
Um, and you can sort of see them by some of the kind of notes and quotations that Heisman puts in her, in her journals. For instance, um, she quotes William Blake, each man is in his spectre's power, um, which is another kind of almost a subtitle um, for the talent of Mr. Ripley. So it's all about, you know, split identity, um, the uncertainty of identity, and this sense of um, the authentic self. Is there such a thing as the authentic self, which actually is a very incredibly modern concept. We talk about authentic selves all the time now. What does that mean? Yeah. And in terms of self-reinvention, as David said, this book is up there with, you know, I think it's up there with Great Gatsby. It's one of the key texts of American self-reinvention. And that's a, an incredible modern, modern idea, I think. For me, when I read this book, I escape with Tom. And I think maybe that's got something to do with it. I think we all harbour that. Um, maybe that's why it's such a person loved by so many, because it is so personal, perhaps. But Andrew, have you got anything to say about that? Yeah, and I think I think well, it's almost Tom's search for him himself. And when you know, there's all this kind of that really sad, there's some really poignant, sad moments on there when Tom has to kind of step back into himself. You know, he he adores the persona of of Dicky. Once once he's killed him, he can take over his identity. He can dress in his clothes. He can spend his money. He can live in these kind of palatial homes. He can invest in art. Yeah. Um, but then there's a moment in the in the plot where he has to shed his skin as Dicky and step back into himself as Tom. And it's a really kind of sad, a really, really terribly sad quote. Um, I've got it, I've written it down here somewhere. Um, it's when sort of... When he's coming back from Sicily. Yes, that's right. And he sort of says... Um, oh, yeah, here we go. I, I bloody hate being Tom Ripley. I wish I didn't have to. <laughs> Along those kind of lines. Um, so yeah. he says something like, um, oh, sorry, I've got a different one here. Flutter page. Oh, yes, here we go. It's in chapter 21. And he's sort of packing and he goes, yeah, as you go, as you say, he hated becoming Tom Ripley again. Hated being nobody. Hated putting on his old set of habits again. And feeling that people looked down on him and were bored with him unless he put on an act for them like a clown, feeling incompetent and incapable of doing anything with himself except entertaining people for minutes at a time. He hated going back to himself as he would have hated putting on a shabby suit of clothes, a grease-spotted, unpressed suit of clothes that had not been very good even when it was new. And of course that brings us on to the, the big subject of possessions and signifiers and what they mean in the text, which I know you're going to talk about as well. Let's jump. Let's jump in uh, to yeah. the second extract, and here it is. He wanted to kill Dicky. It was not the first time he had thought of it. Before, once or twice or three times, it had been an impulse caused by anger or disappointment, an impulse that vanished immediately and left him with a feeling of shame. Now he thought about it for an entire minute, two minutes, because he was leaving Dickie anyway, and what was there to be ashamed of anymore? He had failed with Dickie in every way. He hated Dickie, because however he looked at what had happened, his failing had not been his own fault, not due to anything he had done, but due to Dickie's inhuman stubbornness and his blatant rudeness. He had offered Dickie friendship, companionship, and respect, 
everything he had to offer, and Dickie had replied with ingratitude and now hostility. Dickie was just shoving him out in the cold. If he killed him on this trip, Tom thought, he could simply say that some accident had happened. He could... He had just thought of something brilliant. He could become Dickie Greenleaf himself. He could do everything that Dickie did. He could go back to Mongebello first and collect Dickie's things, tell Marge any damn story, set up an apartment in Rome or Paris, receive Dickie's check every month, and forge Dickie's signature on it. He could step right into Dickie's shoes. He could have Mr. Greenleaf Sr. eating out of his hand. The danger of it, even the inevitable temporariness of it, which he vaguely realized, only made him more enthusiastic. He began to think of how. The water. But Dickie was such a good swimmer. The cliffs. It would be easy to push Dickie off some cliff when they took a walk, but he imagined Dickie grabbing at him and pulling him off with him, and he tensed in his seat until his thighs ached and his nails cut red scallops in his thumbs. He would have to get the other ring off, too. He would have to tint his hair a little lighter, but he wouldn't live in a place, of course, where anybody who knew Dickie lived. He only had to look enough like Dickie to be able to use his passport. Well, he did. If he... Dickie opened his eyes, looking right at him, and Tom relaxed, slumped into the corner with his head back and his eyes shut as quickly as if he had passed out. Tom, are you okay? Dickie asked, shaking Tom's knee. Okay, Tom said, smiling a little. He saw Dickie sit back with an air of irritation, and Tom knew why, because Dickie had hated giving him even that much attention. Tom smiled to himself, amused at his own quick reflex in pretending to collapse, because that had been the only way to keep Dickie from seeing what must have been a very strange expression on his face. Okay, we've done it. Um, it's basically the moment... <laughs> it's basically the moment when um, Tom realises what he's got to do. Would you say that's right, Andrew? He's got to do it? I didn't think so. I think it's like, it's a choice, isn't it, really? And he's made his choice, but it's interesting how he makes his choice because I think he sort of rehearses the arguments in his head. And I think it's the irrationality of it, which is so fascinating because there's no rational reason to kill Dickie, really. Um, and he sort of says a crazy emotion of hate, of affection, of impatience, and frustration was swelling in him, hampering his breathing. He wanted to kill Dickie. It was not the first time he had thought of it. So I think, you know, all the kind of contradictory impulses there, she explores, Highsmith explores in a really fascinating way. And I think it's because he finally realises he can never be Dickie fundamentally. He can never really take over his identity properly or he can never have this intensity of, of experience or oneness or unity that he imagines is possible. Um, so I don't think there's any rational explanation about why he does this. Obviously, it does benefit him in the end in terms of his financial situation. But I think the actual, the underlying impulse is not that. 
even though on the surface it appears that's a motivating factor, there's something deeper that goes on with him there, which is all about irrationality and um, a strange sense of wanting to be him because he just loathes being Tom Ripley. Yeah. And um, David, what's your uh, what's your take on, on, on his motivation for doing it? And if there's anything you want to add to what Andrew's said? Well, I agree with what you're saying, but I also I also see uh, parallels with um, one of the greatest narcissists of the modern age, Donald Trump, where <laughs> he is the most charming person. Um, and it, people that I that I know who have met him when he's when he's had when he's been full force with the charm have said he's a lovely man. He will go out of his way to do anything for you. Hmm. And then it's the people who cross him. And it's it is this thing where he 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 always talks about how he gave them all this all these chances. He was so nice to them. He did all these things. And then when Tom is saying about how he had failed with Dickie in every way, he hated Dickie because however he looked at what had happened, his failing had not been his own fault, not to any uh, not due to anything he had done, but to, to due to Dickie's inhuman sub- stubbornness. And that's and that's it. It's it's just not Tom's fault. Yeah. This is yeah. the reason why he wants to kill Dickie is not his own fault. It's Dickie's fault. Right. He bends it, he bends it to his own, to, to fit his own narrative, which is extraordinary. And what I'm thinking when I'm listening to you guys is like how as a reader, you are often completely, you, you these crime novels, you want to get inside the head of a psychopath or a sociopath or what have you. But you kind of want to get inside the head of someone that you can just about live with, just about tolerate. And I think what this passage does so well is allows you to tolerate the slow twisting of the situation. As Andrew, you just said, there's no rational reason really for him to want to kill him. Uh, Oh, he wants to do it obviously, but there's nothing, you know, it's not like, um, I don't know. It's not like a heist film or what have you, but it's just, it's, it's wonderful how we're, we're dragged along with it. It's so masterful. And, and one part I really, really like in that passage is where Dickie wakes up from his sleep and he looks at Tom. And as a reader, I'm, I'm thinking, is that, is that almost like tele- telepathy? Like he's, he's sensing something bad is happening. Is that, is, is that something you... You you would agree with Andrew, or am I being a bit mad? Well, I think I think it is interesting, and I think also I think there's a, a slight sense of homosexual panic going on in Dickie's head, isn't there? The fact that he suspects that that Ripley is attracted to him sexually, and I think there's definitely an undercurrent of the, of homoeroticism in that relationship. Big and it's time, really yeah. interesting. I think it's really interesting. I think in one of the first drafts, or when Highsmith started working on it i think one of the early ideas was to have them as as both gay men or you know the the gay gayness of this storyline was was more foregrounded in an early idea that she had but she decided to play that down but i think the traces are there aren't there this kind of like and it's really interesting actually you know you turn the page and you actually get to the murder and the murder occurs when when dick is taking his trousers down and it's with an oar. I mean, there's kind of a lot of strange kind of um, <laughs> symbolism going on there. Um, yeah. And it's it's one reading could be, I'm sure, kind of a queer reading would be because, and it's not really that 
um, subtextual at all is the mm. fact that you know Dickie has rejected um, some aspects of Tom's personality and perhaps his sexuality. And of course, the film highlights that um, and really goes and plays with that and, and makes so. that more of a storyline. And sorry, yeah, David, do you have anything to add to that? Well, no, n- nothing other than than the fact that it it gets to the point where he he doesn't feel like he can deny it anymore mm. with with Dickie, especially with the acrobats on the beach. Who, right. Uh, I mean, that's such a good point you brought that you, you brought up there. That is it. You, sorry, carry on because that we yeah. No, that's I, and that's that. and that's the thing, and it's and it's you know, and Dickie sort of says, "You like that, do you?" You want to see more of that? Why don't you stay here? Um, and he's and and Tom's doing the thing where he's he is he's inviting he's inviting him to undress with him to go into the ocean, and yeah. Dicky Dicky turns him down and sort of says, "No, why don't you stay here with your acrobats? I'm gonna go back to right. the hotel, and I'm so disgusted by you that I'm going to take such a massive detour that that I need to go to the next set of stairs that are way further down, uh, yeah. in order in order to to not have to." look at any of this disgusting display any for any longer i think that's what she does so well in that bit and and i think in the film it's done very well you get the uncomfortable sense you know and it's adds to the tension and do we then feel the sympathy for tom then do you think do you think the whole the acrobats that whole thing that he's starting to lose out lose favor with Dickie, and then when finally the murder does come, how do first of all how it's done is gruesome. It's brilliant, obviously. Do you think by then we're enough on Tom's side to will him on? Oh yes, no. I think I think we are by that point because I think we've been so drawn into his character, um, and I think you know just sort of picking up on the kind of sexuality thing. I think I think she makes it really clear early on that he's kind of asexual. You know, there's that sort of scene where he's lying next to Cleo. And she doesn't expect him to do anything in bed. Um, you know, there's the pervert's comment at the, fir- at the first couple of pages. Um, and then by the time we get to, you know, 60 pages, 70 pages in, I think we're kind of aligned um, with the skewed perspective to such an extent that we will kind of will him on to do, to do anything. Um, and it picks up from my point earlier, the fact that we never allowed a different perspective apart from Tom's perspective. So we're kept in this kind of claustrophobic world, um, as Graham Greene said, a world without moral um, endings and a kind of a skewed, a skewed world where you know we're aligned with the guilty and aligned with the criminal. Um, so by the time he attacks him with the oar, I think she's got us, she's, she's hooked us by that point. I mean, I think if you're kind of uncomfortable with it, you would have put this novel down, as certainly many readers did and yeah. still do, I think, because it, really? it does divide people, doesn't it? This kind of writing in this novel. I you know, when, so. when, um, when Highsmith was nominated for one of the crime novels in, in Britain at the Crime Writers Awards, somebody, you know, somebody said they were going to stand down if she was nominated because they thought she was, she was so transgressive. Um, okay. So it does divide me. I mean, maybe it sort of picks up if you've got a slight criminal ele- element and perhaps I've got a criminal element in my psyche that is appeal is appealed to here. But by that point, I'm 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 with 
I'm with Tom all the way and I want him to hit as hard as possible. But at the same time, <laughs> but at the same time, repelled by the idea. So she can do yeah. these two things very, very cleverly. David, yeah. Is there anything you, I keep saying, do you want to add anything to that? Um, no. And of course, I've... mainly because I've forgotten the original bloody question, really. <laughs> How BBC awaits. Are we, are we on side? Are we on side? With, yes, with effectively, we have yes. no we have no choice. And as Andrew said, it is it, the choice we have at that point is to put the book down or to continue reading because we are halfway through the book. The book, we are not at the end of the book. Yeah, we are. We are. We know there is more. This is not this is not the end. This is. And it's not even the end of, of Dickie. It's because of because of Tom. Right. And because of Mr. Greenleaf. So. Um, so we have, it is that it, it's, I know I'm, I'm sorry to bring all these modern, uh, things into no, it, but please do. De- it's relevant. De- you know, Dexter, it, it, Dexter, the, the serial killer where, uh, they're bringing, they're bringing, uh, the TV series back and they, they're bringing it back just as, as someone was saying, you couldn't make this series now because we've moved on as a society yeah. and I completely disagree. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's why, and I, when I saw that they were bringing him back, yeah, that made complete sense to me. But he has to give up Dickie completely. But do you think like he, he gets back into being Tom Ripley and living with that, living in that skin comfortably again? Well, I think it sort of goes back and forth, doesn't it really? And I think what's so joyous is the way that um, Tom becomes a writer in this book. You know, his writerly persona really comes through the forging of the letters you know, I think there's one there's one that he even sort of screws up or rewrites because it's got too many or too few commas. You know, his attention to detail is like a professional writer. And, you know, the idea of, of sort of slipping into people's skins um, is very writely as well. So he kind of almost becomes an author and he sort of sees the people around him as his characters. He can manipulate them. He can make them do what they, he wants. So it's in a kind of a meta, metafictional way. He's the author of this text in a way. He's determining his own identity. And it's a joyous, it's, you know, if you're sort of interested in, in writing, it's, a, it's another level, a joyous level to, to revel in this kind of, yeah. um, this writerliness of Tom Ripley. Yeah. Um, and yeah, David, is, is there any other passage before the final one or a, a moment that means something to you um, in this in this book particularly? Well, I, I think that uh, Freddie's death, because we are at that point rooting for Tom. We yeah. we are we are completely on his side. We don't uh, we don't want Freddie to be the, the person who derails this. Plus, he's anti-redhead as well, right? He described yeah. <laughs> Patricia. She did the whole yes, redheaded freckles, right? You know, yes, and and once again, it's that it's the the sexual deviant thing, where he, you know, he uh, he's finally able to voice his disdain to the corpse sitting uh, sitting there, and that's um, and it's it, it's it's a moment of triumph for him but then you you look at yourself and you go wow i i rooted for this oh okay <laughs> yeah cool right well here's the final extract tom he opened his eyes marge was coming down the stairs barefoot Tom sat up, 
She had his brown leather box in her hand. I just found Dickie's rings in here, she said rather breathlessly. Oh, he gave them to me to take care of. Tom stood up. When? In Rome, I think. He took a step back, struck one of his shoes and picked it up, mostly in an effort to seem calm. What was he going to do? Why'd he give them to you? She'd been looking for a thread to sew her bra, Tom thought. Why in the hell hadn't he put the ring somewhere else, like in the lining of that suitcase? I don't really know, Tom said. A whim or something? You know how he is. He said if anything ever happened to him, he wanted me to have his rings. Marge looked puzzled. Where was he going? To Palermo? Sicily? He was holding the shoe in both hands in a position to use the wooden heel of it as a weapon. And how he would do it went quickly through his head. Hit her with the shoe, then haul her out by the front door and drop her into the canal. He'd say she'd fallen, slipped on the moss, and she was such a good swimmer he thought she could keep afloat. Marge stared down at the box. Then he was going to kill himself. Yes, if you want to look at it that way, the rings, they make it look more likely that he did. Why didn't you say anything about it before? I think I absolutely forgot them. I put them away so they wouldn't get lost, and I never thought of looking at them since the day he gave them to me. He either killed himself or changed his identity, didn't he? Yes. Tom said it sadly and firmly. You'd better tell Mr. Greenleaf. Yes, I will. Mr. Greenleaf and the police. This practically settles it, Marge said. Tom was wringing the shoe in his hands like a pair of gloves now, yet still keeping the shoe in position because Marge was staring at him in a funny way. She was still thinking. Was she kidding him? Did she know now? Marge said earnestly, I just can't imagine Dickie ever being without his rings. And Tom knew then that she hadn't guessed the answer, that her mind was miles up some other road. He relaxed then, limply, sank down on the sofa and pretended to busy himself with putting on his shoes. No, he agreed automatically. sort of on a bit of a knife edge isn't it that sort of when marge comes down with the with the rings yes and we have we have him um we have him having the quiet panic the internal quiet panic while being so soft and so sincere and so so straightforward with her and almost making her seem ridiculous which is his his main uh, main thing to to get her off the scent and that is um and it's the it's the final moment and he you know and he the fact that he is prepared to once again just uh, he he will wait for the moment when she realizes what he's done to kill her instead of killing her right away um uh, but he is he is the fact and the fact that he he creates a weapon out of something that he just bumps into. Right. Yeah. 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 A shoe. A shoe. Love it. I will beat you to death with my own shoe. Yes. Yeah. 
necessity is the mother of invention, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. And also I love, like, like David says, I also love that moment where he's sort of, his, his hands around the shoe, and then he starts to imagine the death. And, you know, that almost becomes more real than the murder itself, isn't it? His imagining of these kind of deaths, um, which he did with Dickie, obviously, before. Um, and it's really kind of interesting because Highsmith knew exactly what she was doing. And it's a technique that she picked up from Crime and Punishment, where the central character um, rehearses the death in his head before he does it. And the rehearsal is actually much more terrifying and much more realistic than the actual actual murder. Um, but also I love, I love this passage because obviously the rings are mentioned on the train journey as well, aren't they? Because Tom eyes these rings, you know, the signet ring and the oinks ring, and he sort of sees them as sort of symbols of, of Dickie. And just the page before uh, where Marge comes down, there's a whole kind of um, exploratory passage about the importance of possessions and what they mean to, to, to Tom. So she kind of foregrounds the scene um, by, you know, raising the idea, the, the idea of possessions and what they mean. And, you know, there's, this, there's a wonderful kind of quote, he loved possessions, not masses of them, but a select few that he did not part with. They gave a man self-respect. Um, you know, this kind of idea that if you have the right kind of signifiers around you, you can define yourself. And again, that's incredibly modern, isn't it? Where, you know, people think they can drop these signifiers of either ostentation or other meaning, and we can read people through what they have. Uh, and it's a fascinating kind of, you know, she doesn't, she's not very heavy handed about it at all. But it's all about identity through through possessions though. Yeah, no, I agree. It's there. It's it do you think there's any element towards edging towards the end of the book that we want any kind of redemption or we're happy for Tom to carry on? We don't need that though, do we? We're comfortable to have him just carrying on being Tom. Yes. And also it's really interesting that when she when she was writing um this book, in her notebook, um which is quite a strong quote to take. Um, she said, what I predicted I would once do, I am doing already in this very book, Tom Ripley. That is showing the unequivocal triumph of evil over good and rejoicing in it. I shall make my readers rejoice in it too. Thus the subconscious always precedes the consciousness or reality as in dreams. And I think that's a really kind of neat summary of what she does in this book and why it is so subversive. And also, uh, okay, it's assumed that he is uh, a gay man, but it's left to interpretation, I suppose, to a degree. But a gay man, if you want to take that route, gets away with it. And that's sort of one of the first, one of the, the takeaways from this book and the time it was written, that a, a homosexual was not punished for being a homosexual, right? Yeah. Um, well, I wouldn't really call him homosexual. Actually, I mm. think he's I think he's more interesting than that, and a bit and a more complex. I mean, it could be um, a, perhaps a homosexual who is repressed through cultural pressure, for instance. But I think, and especially the way that she develops him in, you know, the other Ripley novels, there's not really a sense of him being straightforwardly homosexual because. You know, right at the end of this book, yeah, he's got 
a certain amount of money and wealth and trappings, he's free. So she could easily have made him in the sub subsequent books a, a gay man, you know, subversive yeah. gay man. But she chooses for him to marry the daughter of a pharmaceutical um, company managing director, you know. I know. <laughs> so, she, you know, this kind of, you know, lives in this kind of bourgeois life in this, this chateau outside outside Paris. Yeah. Um, so I think there's something more interesting going on, which, which she believed, and she didn't really believe in categories either. Mm. She believed in ambiguity and fluidity, which, which again is a super modern concept. Yeah, and um, David, and just to go back to the to the extract you read, um, the the role that Marge plays in the book by the time she's won over in inverted commas, like I don't know if that's quite correct, but. Um, what i mean what role does marge play towards the end there do you think what is her like or maybe highsmith's purpose of hanging marge so hanging oh that was freudian wow. having marge hang around for a bit longer yeah. um and and not killing her off uh what do you think was the the role there for marge well uh, there's a few things i see that I, I i feel like she is being turned into the italian window uh, the italian widow um so uh, she's the one who's left behind. She's the one who um, uh, will now just spend her life in mourning. Yeah. Uh, but I also see her uh, taking on the the role of um, of the third wheel because it's because it's it was her and Dicky, and now it's Tom and Dicky, and she is the mm -hmm. third wheel, and that's what I sort of tried to to bring across in the fact that she no longer had that purpose. She was so strong. She was written as such a strong, strong woman. And bit by bit, you just see, see the, the, the life force ebbing out of her. Andrew, what was your, your feeling if you can possibly cast your mind back those, that, that, that many years to, no offense, that many years to um, the first time you read that, those last, that last letter or those last few paragraphs when basically Tom's got everything he dreamed of well we're sort of still with him aren't we we're still sort of trapped with him and he is looking around for a policeman you know there's a sense mm. of paranoia though which in a way you think might haunt him for the rest of his life so you really think you know will he won't he get away with it and yeah. she manages to you know very very cleverly in a couple of paragraphs right at the end you know, there's the letter that comes, which, you know, we learn that he gets um, all of Dickie's possessions and his will inherits his estate. And then, you know, he's in Athens, he picks up Dickie's suitcases and paintings at the American Express office. Um, and then, you know, he's he he's in Athens and he, he, he senses, there's a sense of celebration, isn't there, when he kind of, there's a, a great sense of relief when he yeah. realises, oh, there's nobody waiting for him. He can go to the best hotel, and that those are the, the very last words of of the book. So you know his future is incredibly positive. The best hotel, the best, not any yeah. old old hotel. So he's yeah. going to have a future of material rewards. And I just got a sense, and I still do when I read it, of um, elation for him, and then a sense of oh my god, what kind of a person am I? That colludes <laughs> with with a, a somebody who's killed two people in this book, yeah. um, 
And then obviously, as, as you know, as you, you read more and more of Ripley, you know, the journey doesn't stop stop there. He goes on to kill, he goes on to get away with murder more and more time. And he becomes pretty damn professional what he does. Um, David, what do you think? Did you have any uh, feelings of adulation and celebration for, for Tom's triumph and all the hard work he put in? Uh, well, we have... Uh, we have seen in with that last letter, the the monster is finally born. He is um, he he finally has the money. He is he is he is the person. He is he is free of the shackles. He is still worried about the policeman standing at the docks with folded arms, but uh, but that is just part of his anxiety. Um, but uh, and as you say, we he moves on to become quite quite. Um, but what I what I did want to just ask, we've got like five, ten minutes left, if that's okay, just to talk really quickly about the the book versus the film, or not versus, just the the I don't know the talking points between the two. Um, and I suppose obviously the, the main one would be the um, well, not the main one. There's the jazz, of course. You know, there's yeah. there's that I absolutely love. What what do you guys, the comparisons between the two, should we start with Andrew, what was your like main takeaway when you first saw the film after obviously loving the book for so many years? Um, I love the film actually, um, but I do think of it as a different entity. Um, obviously there's different powers and I, I'm not a purist at all. Um, and I kind of believe that, you know, screenwriters and directors and um, adapters can do very free things with with films. Having said that, one of my biggest disappointments was the fact that they gave Ripley a conscience. Mm. And I think the conscience is missing from this book. And I think that's what makes it a disturbing, transgressive read. Um, and I can understand the reasons why. I interviewed Anthony Minghella um, when the film came out and he told me it's because of the Hollywood studio system. They were not going to finance even then, in 1999, they weren't going to finance a book which had this dark personality getting away with murder. Yeah. And I think now times have changed culturally, um, and there's been other, as, as David said, other other kinds of, of characters on screen, like Dexter and Hannibal Lecter, um, where we've seen this kind of character um, be explored. But that's my main disappointment, is the fact that Ripley did did have a conscience in this film and you sense that he's being punished for his actions you know he's sitting in the cabin at the end oh, man. the mirrored door is is banging back and forth his reflections i mean it's an incredibly powerful scene mm. um and it works in terms of the film but um that's my only that's my only main um concern about the film really and and david what about yourself what do you it's the same thing i i um, the the issue that that he was he, that he found love in the film hmm. because clearly clearly that was love they made sure that oh, yeah. we saw that 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 was the case and then him because he because he thought that he would be caught uh, because because of uh, of the name that would be uttered from his lover's lips yeah um uh, he felt that the only way out would be to kill him and the fact that he instead of killing himself yes, yes um and and yes i have i have a massive massive problem 
with Hollywood and uh, and the games industries and and so like that, punishing the gay man. Mm, um, yeah, I'm punish, punishing the queer the queer character. Mm. Um, I mean, it is interesting. I still really really enjoy it, and I think Jack Davenport doesn't get enough credit for that as well because he's phenomenal mm. in that in that role. Yeah. Um, I saw it on, I saw the film for the first time on a boat uh, in the North Sea, in the middle of the North Sea, and um, which I think was the wrong place to watch that final scene. And I came out, I came out of it with my friend and we just went, oh my God, he's an, he's a monster, absolute monster. And, but we, we said it in a way that I don't think you would say it at the end of the book. You would say the same words, but, uh, but you would say them in a very, very different way. Hmm. And I think, that's the, I think that's the fundamental difference. I'm not saying bad or, or, or good or bad. I'm saying that's the big difference. Yeah, and stylistically, um, just as we draw it to a close, uh, wh- what are your thoughts? Because um, I personally love this film. It, it, aesthetically, it's unbelievable. It just saturates you in textures. And Andrew, would you, would you agree on that? Oh, yeah, I think the costumes, the sets, the, 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 the acting, um, everything transports you back to that time. Um, the locations are obviously incredibly gorgeous, aren't they? I mean, especially this last year, if you sort of haven't been able to travel anywhere, you just can put the towns of Mr. Ripley on, it will transport you to, you know, that part of the Italian coastline, which is glorious. Um, the sunshine and also the acting like Kate, you know, having Kate Blanchett there oh. is obviously not in, in the book at all, but she yeah. really brings something incredibly special. And I think, mm. um, I think Anthony Geller was very, very conscious of choosing actors who were just on the cusp of their careers. You know, none of them are huge, big stars, but you know, this film made them into yeah. huge stars. I agree. Yeah. And the the image the image of of Tom coming uh, out across, uh, into the uh, onto the beach with his yellow I think it was the yellow sort of uh, green speedos and yeah. yeah thank you green <laughs> yeah it's acid almost uh, and then his uh, and his uh, brogues I think it was burned his, into uh, our minds <laughs> yes and uh, completely pasty and you come and then you see these beautiful sun kissed bodies and you see the difference the, the difference between them. Yeah. And uh, and I I almost feel like uh, Mangella must have segregated um, him uh, before and you know not allowed to <laughs> to see sunlight until yeah. that scene because yeah. he's just he just looks he just looks like a newborn babe uh, right. coming I mean, out that's, there. But that's a very good way of putting it, actually, because you know, Ted, well, he is, and he's just about to be unbelievably well corrupted by his own evil spirit, I suppose. But I mean, it's they're stunning, absolutely stunning, aren't they? As, as people, as you just look at Jude Law, you just go, "Oh my God, you are, you, you what are you? You're like a god. You look so yes. gorgeous." My my wife's like, "Close your mouth, stop drooling." Um, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're all, and even Matt Damon, not even Matt Damon's beautiful in this film. Um, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, stunning, and I, I just think. I mean, I'm known. I'm, I'm, I did use the word aesthetic earlier, but it is very aesthetically pleasing. Um, yeah. But also, you know, it's um, 
it, the subtext is is so profound. I, I think it's fine to just drool a little bit about, about scenery and and what have you. But um, is there anything else you'd like to say? Because we've probably got about a minute and a half left before we cut off. Maybe um, four if we're lucky. Yeah, just just be really interesting to see what the new the Showtime production will be like. Because obviously it's yeah. shooting now, I think, it and is, they're shooting yeah. on location, I think, in this year and Italy. And I think that's going to be eight parts, the first one. And I think they're going to take each book um, and do them in eight, eight parts. But it's, I think they've cast that really, really well. I'm really looking forward to Andrew Scott as, as Ripley because he's got that transgressive nature already in terms of some of the parts he's played, like Moriarty. And he's got the hotness, he's got the hotness from the hot priest. <laughs> um, so I think it would be fascinating to see. Yeah, are you looking forward to it, David? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Can't wait to see. I'm really excited for it. Um, but yeah. Um, New cool. obsession for you, William. I know. Oh, my God. I thought they might do in eight parts and do the whole thing. in. in but then I was like, that's insane because they do that. They're going to completely mess it up. That makes way more sense. But ha have you guys seen any of the other um, Ripley movies? Uh, there's one with John Malkovich in. Yeah, I liked that one. Ripley's Game. It's, it's good, isn't it? It's low, low yeah, budget, it's good. but it's, it's good, yeah. Yes, Liliana Cavani, I think, isn't it, who directed it. Um, but interesting in terms of, again, I think he really captures something about Ripley, especially the later Ripley. The fact, you know, by this point in his career, he's become, he's become so cold and psychopathic, but he's still got a, a sense of charm. But again, it's a different Ripley. I mean, I think the, the Ripley books that come later, the character Ripley actually sometimes bears no resemblance to, to Tom in the first book. Yeah, exactly, um, and yeah. there was a huge and there was a huge gap between, between writing them as well. But yeah, look, guys, um, I can't thank you enough for um, basically humoring me. 